You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. I'm so happy that I get to be joined by Shane today. It's our first sort of solo outing together. Whatever that, I guess it's not really solo, but our, our dual outing together, right? Whatever that may mean, dynamic duo type of situation here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the uh, the tenacious D of podcast. Uh, <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> um, so how you how you doing, man? I'm good, man. How are you? It's nice to see you. Uh, nice to see you as well. Um, <laughs> I'd like to actually begin by I just I need to ask you some questions. Uh, how are your how, how are your physiological needs doing today? You've got food and everything. I've got food. Um, looking forward to sleep. I've got a little bit of water here, so things are cool there. That's great. Are you, do you feel yeah. safe, more or less, in a way? For the most part. Uh, there's a thunderstorm here in Florida. You know how that goes sometimes. It's kind of dodgy, but for the most yeah. part, safe, good. All right. You feel uh, loved and like you belong, all that I feel. Happening? I'm feeling all the love, man. All Perfect. the love. That's wonderful. How's your How's your self-esteem going? Ah, it could be better. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> We're getting there. Do you uh, do you feel self fulfilled and that you are uh, your best? You've re- you've reached your potential. Uh, I don't know how to measure that, so I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a teaser. That's a good teaser <laughs> for what's coming up. So, going through those things, we're we're talking about something that many people have heard of in some capacity or another, uh, referred to as Maslow's hierarchy of needs i guess we'll just call it a hierarchy of needs because we'll talk about maslow and then something that's been expanded on that um but the basic idea here being that there are sort of there's a hierarchical structure of motivations of things that are important to us that other types of things won't become important unless those sort of baseline um needs are taken care of right that's the that's sort of the overview of the hypothesis wrapped up in this. Yeah. Kind of like uh, checkpoints along the track, right? Like, you know, you have to meet this next, this one thing to make the next thing more important or, or something along those lines. Like, you know, one thing isn't so great until the first thing is met. Yeah, that's great. I like that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we could even try and tie into the idea of someone who is going out running uh, at what level might they be in this assessment of having their needs met that they're motivated by that kind of activity? Um, you know, I think once we dig into it, we'll maybe have a, a little bit better of an answer. So, uh, as I, as I said, so we're talking about this, this hierarchy of needs thing, and we'll start with, uh, the, the name attached to this Maslow and, uh, the fact that he's, he's mostly well known for in his career, having proposed a system of classifying the basic human needs and arranging them, as I mentioned, in this sort of hierarchical structure. He did lots of things in his career, but that was one of the probably the most famous things that he did. And that the list includes uh, physiological needs, safety and security, belongingness, esteem and self-actualization with the original five that he had proposed, as I mentioned in going through actually checking in on my buddy Shane, making sure that his needs are sufficiently met. I thought I could do a whole lot for too many of them from across the the country. Um, but some of the, you know, uh, the higher ones, I could, I could maybe tell you how special you are and whatnot. Oh, you're so good <laughs> to me. You're so good to me. So the idea here with the hierarchy of needs is that over time, they, the, those needs develop and they get more sophisticated. And, you know, at the end of the day, lower needs are more powerful than those higher needs, right? So, you know, for example, it might be that things like food and water tend to be more powerful needs than self-actualization and love and friendship and self-esteem. So we kind of talk about this, and, and a lot of times what you'll see is that it's arranged in a pyramid type of situation. Uh, it, you've got this foundational need, and it kind of builds up from there. Um, and that's a lot of how it's presented. But that's kind of evolved over time as well. You know, it, it, it strikes me that if one is going to do well in psychology, they had better wrap their idea around a particular uh, geometric shape, probably a triangle. Um, <laughs> that seems to be that the some of the things that have survived the test of time uh, had a, a, a very nice looking shape attached to them. <laughs> Unless um, you're talking about the ego, which may be a different that's a whole different thing. <laughs> Right. That's There's fair. no shape to that. <laughs> well, well, that thing, it actually does. It exists because the whole iceberg metaphor in uh, psychoanalysis oh, yeah. is basically a, is basically a triangle. I messed Tell- up. 
I'm, no, it's all right. I'm telling you that's the triangle is a thing in psychology. We love we love it. Holy <laughs> triangle. All right. So as you mentioned, as those more basic needs are satisfied, um, the general hypothesis or sort of um, interpretation is that as those needs are satisfied, the better one does psychologically speaking. We'll try to pack what that might be and and how to account for that using as much as we can of our understanding about behavior and on other things like motivation. I definitely get the sense at this point that, and we'll dig into more of the development, but that Maslow sort of pulled in a few terms without really unpacking them too much when he says, you know, human motivation. And, and if that's so important in understanding some of these things, then I got to stop and ask, well, what, what do you mean? If you were just sort of throwing out the term motivation and there's just sort of a thing, that's, that's fine. But this is a, a sort of linchpin in the extent to which this model sort of works. Um, but that's, that's okay. We'll get into some more of that. I think what I'd like to leave off with before we go into some of the background of, of Mr. Maslow or Dr. Maslow, I should say, is that he, he, predicted that, or he, he suggested, we'll say suggested, that psychopathology, uh, which is to say mental health disorders, and specifically people who are psychotic and sociopaths, that that was a result of having been deprived of some of those important basic needs. That was what his suggestion so, well, his specific suggestion. So basically the idea being that if somebody is starving and without shelter, they're probably more likely to engage in problematic or have more uh, um, psychological, psychologically problematic symptoms. Like they may they may be more uh, dangerous or they may be more uh, just basically unhealthy. Right. Yeah. And I think that it makes sense based on the structure of his model to simply say that someone who doesn't have that need of uh, having essential food and water and shelter sort of needs available or having been taken care of, that they're not going to care about looking good to other people. And they're not going to care about having that good relationship with people. Um, they're going to be focused simply on what matters in the moment. So I think that there is this is one of those phenomenon that and part of the reason that it has um, that I think that it was successful initially and, and has more or less hung around in psychology for quite some time is that it feels intuitive. It, you know, and there, there are so many things that uh, show up in psychology that because we can sort of logically understand how they might work, they feel intuitive enough to assume that they do work in that way. But that, that's okay. We're, we're, I'm jumping ahead. We've jumped ahead <laughs> a lot. So let's, let's actually... We're going to travel backward in time. We have 118, no, 110, <laughs> I do my math, 110 years to go back. Um, and we're going to discover this, this little baby uh, who <laughs> coincidentally is named Abraham. The first Abraham? Hmm. hmm. <laughs> no, maybe not quite. So yeah. Abraham Maslow was born in New York in 1908. Uh, he studied psychology in a couple different branches. He studied at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, originally, he was interested in philosophy when he was younger, um, but actually got pretty frustrated with all the talking that didn't get anywhere. So the idea was that, you know, People talked about problems, but they didn't really do anything with it. Um, and so that's when he kind of started focusing on psychology where they were starting. And at that time, they were starting to get more into like the applications and, and developing really what was happening in the real world. So um, he kind of shifted his focus from just talking to doing. Yeah, he initially, interestingly, was interested in the behaviorism psychology. And actually, at this time, there was sort of the, the, the two big contenders in psychology you had um, in the early 1900s-ish era when he would have been going to college, 19, you know, uh, 20s, mid-20s or so. You had essentially the school of behaviorism, um, largely pre-B.F. Skinner. I think uh, Skinner wasn't publishing as much in the 1920s until and as he was in like the 30s and 40s. Um, but you definitely had John Watson of fame of the Little Albert Experiment that came out, an episode that we published recently. And uh, also at the same time as you had psychoanalysis with Sigmund Freud. And uh, Maslow obviously knew about both of these. He, as I mentioned, was originally drawn to behaviorism, but he kind of he kind of let that go. He really, uh, there was another philosophical, I want to say sort of orientation to psychology that was out there um, that was called positivism, uh, which I think would actually be really fun to do an episode on. But let's just say that essentially the idea of positivism was to focus on empirical evidence. Um, and so that, that was something that appealed to Maslow. But 
he didn't like the way that behaviorism at the time was going about it. And he also thought that the psychoanalysts were a little off track. They were, they were too in their, in the, the far other end of uh, the idea of subconscious and whatnot. And so he sort of decided to fall somewhere in the middle. Um, he regarded himself as timid, and he was reluctant and sort of held himself back, you could say, when he first began doing his research. But he he kind of fell into the development of that middle ground place called humanistic psychology. He found a lot of interest in what was going on in that particular field, and he really liked this idea called self-actualization. And what was entailed by that is this creating the best possible experience from a sort of human perspective and that that would also help with his feeling of sort of self-conscious and being timid and whatnot. Yeah. So that makes sense. Like Timmy kid wants to kind of have a better experience, wants to, you know, become his, it reaches highest potential, right? Sure. So it wasn't until world war two that he actually started looking at, um, some things like human motivation, right? Like, so he actually didn't really start pinning down a lot of his theories until that th- those moments where uh, and he kind of cites this as a 33 year old father with two kids. Um, he actually gained a sense of urgency from the horrors of mass warfare. Right. So the idea that this God awful war happens kind of pushed him into this new focus of human motivation and, and how that applies to self-actualization. So it's clear that Maslow's research interest like actually were driven by a lot of his own personal experiences and kind of the shared experiences of the culture around him during that time, uh, which is a pretty tumultuous time in, in human history. Uh, and it actually kind of explains where his humanist approach to psychology um, really kind of gets its, uh, its roots from. Right. And it's useful, I think, to have that understanding of some of the context in which he was operating as he developed these ideas for the hierarchy of needs and talking about self-actualization and, and all of that. And I still am a little unclear from, uh, from researching this what his end goal was. Like, what was he working toward? What questions specifically was he trying to answer by developing this I guess, heuristic of understanding human motivation and, and that sort of thing. And so, as you mentioned, I think, you know, those effects of, of war created a desire to know. So I think there was some of this was simple curiosity. Um, and I think some of this was also the motivation to explain human behavior in a way that made sense to him. And potentially, and I'm extrapolating from this and I'm putting words in where there aren't words necessarily, but I think potentially some of this was, can we find a way to, if we see that needs are not met, um, if we address that at a sort of societal level, will that decrease things like war? I would assume that that was part of it. He didn't, I don't, as far as I know, he never explicitly said that, but you know, it's, it's a noble, it's a noble cause at least yeah. there. It's, it's worth a shot, right? <laughs> right. So let's, um, let's break down specifically his hierarchy of needs. You, uh, you sort of gave away a couple of them, but I think there's, there's a lot to unpack in here. So uh, let's, let's start by discussing what they are and uh, what they entail and that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. So originally, uh, his, his hierarchy of needs started with five needs, and, and that kind of evolved over time. But in kind of the simplest explanation, if you're talking about parsimony, really looking at physiological needs, and that's the bottom tier of this, this pyramid, right? It's like kind of the foundation of this triangle. Uh, and this encompasses things that are, um, you know, like food, shelter, warmth, sleep, sex, air, you know, the kind of like basic human needs, you know, we're kind of hardwired and born needing those things. You know, they're biological in, in, in nature. They contribute to this idea of human survival, which doesn't necessarily guarantee human survival once we get those things. But the idea is that um, we come hardwired needing these things to be able to, and, and, the, and these needs being met will help us kind of like get to the next level of this, of these needs, right. Of this, of this kind of hierarchy of things that he's talking about. Right. And going back to the example I used before that if these needs aren't being met, if they aren't fulfilled in some way or another, then the expectation here is that no other things that seem like they're at those higher levels, that those won't be important to people who can't have this basic level addressed, um, that they're going to be interested in simply and being able to address their physiological survival needs, as you, as you pointed out. And once they have sufficiently, once they feel sufficiently uh, satiated in terms of their uh, survival needs, the next step that he proposed simply is safety. Um, and 
this is sort of a, a new set of needs and motivations that begin to emerge out of having fulfilled on the previous set. And this really refers to things like security and order, law, um, essentially freedom and avoidance of things that are fearful. Okay, so a way to maybe think about this in terms of how this need is described is essentially that as long as there are conditions under which safety is threatened, and there are various types of safety that can exist, but as long as those conditions are present and that that need hasn't been met, that the primary motivation is going to be to put is to be secure and safe before anything else, except for those physiological needs. Um, will be of importance to a person. And some of those types of security and safety include personal security, emotional security, um, health and well-being security, financial security. And so there's a lot of different ways that this could sort of exist for people. And Maslow mentions a bit how this is different between adults and children. Um, but I think the important point of, of how to interpret this is, uh, t- let's go, go with a specific example, is someone who is just trying to make a living because they are there is like maybe there's a hard economic time going on and a lot of people are suffering a lot of people are homeless that um in this particular situation the motivation is job security like i'm not going to go for a job that is that uh pays well but is a high risk of turnover and i'm not going to go for a job that is uh temporary but i'm going to go for like this is a consistent paycheck might be the motivator if one's uh financial safety is threatened in that particular situation so less about things like you know i want to feel loved and taken care of and more about like my my level of focus is keep is stay alive by, or is having that security to stay alive by having um, financial stability uh, in my life. And Maslow does talk a bit about how a child, for example, might experience something like illness um, and, or some kind of physical pain or sickness, and that might make it seem like the world's a more dangerous place, unclear, but that that kind of, that could begin to shape some of how they sort of see the world if they, uh, early on, uh, those safety needs, like there's also more of a threat before the, the feeling of safety is, is achieved. Another example that Maslow gave was that like for a child, if they were to get lost or separated uh, for the parent, even for a short period of time, that um, new situations um, faces, assuming that this kid wants to be around their parent in some capacity, <laughs> that those things are going to be a little more frightening and that therefore they're going to be more likely to sort of cling to the parent and uh, shadow them around. So we might generalize and say that the uh, the average child in our society generally prefers a safe, orderly, predictable, organized world that that individual can count on uh, in order to be able to navigate it and have that level level of security. Yeah, that makes sense. So like, I mean, at the end of the day, when we talk about safety, there's probably a hierarchy of safety needs within that as well, I would imagine, considering you're talking about like financial and biological and mental and all that emotional, all, you know, maybe all the way down the line, there's probably some levels of safety there too turtles all the way down it's like a a triangle (laughs) a triangle within a triangle there's so many there's too many triangles so (laughs) so the next the next level the third level uh you know for the original hierarchy of needs talks about loving and belongingness and and so this actually kind of focuses more on your social needs the idea that human beings are are social creatures and that we have this general need to be able to be loved to have friendship to have trust acceptance receiving and giving affection uh, and where some of the, the the challenge with this particular level comes in is that in in the basic need they talk about sex being a basic need right one of your physiological needs but it's actually pretty used synonymously with the, the term love so um, when they talk about sexual behavior it's multi-determined the idea is that you know it's it's kind of used interchangeably between sex and love and and, and part of that social context so it starts getting a little bit more complicated here when you talk about those social needs and those different hierarchies and levels of what social needs are because some people may only need friendship you need especially now with kind of the current research out there it talks about you know people who are not necessarily um you know they may be asexual or they may fall in that pansexual line or they may just be social people that don't really need all that if you really want to dig into that it makes it a little bit more complicated so it's kind of interesting though to see that this is this would be the third level and that you know it, it is has is kind of evolved since his original theory 
It has, and it, it makes me wonder whether that would can. I'm going to sound like a Freudian psychologist, but whether the idea of the relative importance and implication of something like sex kind of exists at all levels of this in one way or another, um, because it certainly sounds like you might make the case that someone who is non non-binary sexually speaking in terms of their orientation, um, whatever that might mean for them would be possible at the level of self actualization. Um, I'm not, I'm not clear because I don't think that that kind of uh, consideration was even around for Maslow to take to try and build into this model. Um, at least not maybe in his uh, in his purview of awareness. Um, it's you know, obviously there have been people who have had various orientations throughout all of human history, but those topics have also been considered relatively taboo. So yeah, and I think and I think that you know considering that I think that there's probably in going back to like the current literature about which we'll talk about later, I think there probably hasn't been a substantial bit of research to kind of evaluate that in regard to gender norms or any orientation or things like that are, that are these more complex and pretty nuanced areas of study. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So to recap really quickly, we have at our base that the, the most important thing that that's going to drive human behavior, at least at, for some period of time, is having physiological survival needs met. Then there is the need for safety and security. And then finally, um, the third one that we've discussed that you just talked about was the idea of sort of having love and a belongingness and some kind of uh, social group. Um, and so going a little bit above that level of simply making it. And so these are actually... So one way that this is talked about with those first three, um, those are sometimes described as deficiency needs. And then the following two levels past that are sometimes regarded as growth needs or being needs. Um, so both sections refer to as D needs versus B needs, respectively, for the being versus deficiency. And the, the idea that the deficiency needs are those motivators that arrive as a product of having been deprived of some important fundamental thing that needs to happen, and that those things are going to be powerful motivators that drive behavior, and that those uh, being needs are going to be uh, more about the sort of uh, that, that self-actualization piece and the, um, the feeling fulfilled and, and reaching one's potential and um, being sort of the best versions of oneself sort of idea. And the, uh, another way that people have divided up this triangle um, in the original five is that there's the basic needs, which are the bottom two. That's the physiological needs and safety. Then the psychological needs, which are the middle two, which is belongingness and love and the one that I'm going to cover right now, which is esteem. And then there's the top, uh, which is called the self-fulfillment needs. And that's the self-actualization piece that we'll get to in a moment. But that's one way that people have also um, broken down this talking about this. So moving into that second part or the the being the bee needs if you will it's the the bee's, <laughs> the bees needs, needs or the <laughs> the bee's needs of the bee needs um <laughs> so the argument here is that all people in society, once they've had those initial needs met, but generally speaking, those people who have reached the level of participating in society, and especially I think you could talk about Maslow was an American, so thinking about this in terms of American culture and society, that everyone has this desire for a firm, stable, relative, uh, sufficiently high evaluation of themselves personally. And there are two ways that Maslow considered that this might exist. So it's almost a triangle or triangles <laughs> one and a half, maybe, I don't know. Uh, the first one is esteem for oneself. And so this is the idea of, um, you know, feeling a achievement from when you complete something correctly and satisfactorily, uh, feeling confidence in yourself, dignity, independence, freedom, that all of that sort of exists inside of this idea of esteem. And the second part of esteem is, uh, is a desire for reputation and respect from others. So not just that you feel good about yourself, but that you also have some level of status or recognition or appreciation from your, the social group of people around you. And that, 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 those sort of things fulfill on the uh, the needs, the the esteem needs, and that what might be regarded as psychological needs or the bee needs uh, portion of the pyramid. <laughs> That's <a> weird phrase. <laughs> bee needs, yeah. You, and bee you needs. probably, yeah, I mean, you could definitely see that in like uh, current culture, right? In current American culture, with like, and especially with like, you know, the rise of social media and stuff like that. But I think that there's probably some degree again where this is this level of needs hasn't been applied to that in the current research. So we'll probably need to dig into that a little bit more. Cool. Yeah. All right. So. So 
Last one. Last one. We're going to talk about, well, the last one in the original, right? So this is in kind of like yes. before they like remodeled the pyramid and, and like put some new like uh, shingles on it and stuff. The, you know, <laughs> here we're at is the, 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 the original peak was the, the self-actualization, right? So they talk about self-actualization as realizing potential in oneself, self-fulfillment, personal growth, realizing and becoming the best capable being. So the idea would be that this, you're, this is the quintessential you are the human being right like you are the best you can be you are living your best life you're you're taking that motto and really applying it um the term was originally first used by kurt goldstein and uh it was it was kind of one of those things that mm, i don't know if there's a really good definition for it right sure it's it's pretty broad it's pretty nebulous it's uh you know, and it doesn't re- and it can vary based on individuals like you may be living your best life today. And I don't know that um, you may have reached that self-actualization piece. I don't know that I have met mine yet. Um, but again, I don't know if there's a really good way to talk about what that looks like. Or I think it's it, in, in ultimately it's going to vary across each individual and their own learning history and their own values. This is an age old problem in psychology that there are concepts that are undefined and therefore cannot be tested because there's no test that can be because when you apply a test, the idea is, you know what the critical features of something are so that you can test those critical features and see where someone falls with respect to that concept. Going back to that idea of like intelligence and, and, and other things that we've talked about in here and, and in psychology, this idea of something like self actualization and what we don't really have a definition for it. And I'm like, well, then how am I going to measure it because even if I go about saying well there's no real way to measure it but I'm just going to ask some questions the questions that you choose to measure it are then setting the definition of what that thing is and are subject obviously to interpretation um, because it's not something that has any those questions weren't necessarily designed out of a a conceptual understanding of what the concept in this this context is so it wasn't like well we uh, we know what self-actualization is and therefore we know that these are the appropriate questions to ask. It's more like these are questions that we can ask because we don't really know what the thing we're trying to find is. But that tells you that the only thing you're going to find are, are answers to those particular questions. It'd be like if I went into a room that was completely black and I shined a flashlight around for a few seconds, I'm only going to see the things that the flashlight lands on and none of the stuff that the flashlight doesn't land on. And that doesn't mean that they're not there. It just means that I didn't look at them. And I think that's how I would describe what's going on when you try and design an assessment around something for which there is, there's no definition or, um, or like clear conceptual understanding of what that thing is. And maybe in this case, there doesn't necessarily need to be, but as you really point out, it's difficult to know whether or not we would look at someone and say that person is uh, psychologically healthy and stable because they are self-actualized. I don't know. You know, <laughs> who, who knows if that's the case, maybe. And before we move on to, the next part where we'll talk about how some of the, the pyramid has changed, I think there's a very common misunderstanding that the original intention of this pyramid was that everybody um, moves through these, and once you're there, you never, like, the bottom ones are, no, like, are always, always have to be met in order for the new ones to stay. So what that it's easy to point to non-example of that and look at someone who deliberately fasts and withholds food from their self and say well this is an example of someone who is not having their physiological need of hunger met and yet they're doing this thing that could potentially kill them suicide is another example of that and so uh the way that maslow described this and we'll get into more of the nuances of this and how this evolved as we talk about how the pyramid started to change but the way that he described this was that once you have met relative relatively sufficient uh, fulfillment at one level that the next level becomes available and now that that previous level is not necessarily always going to be met for that next level to be important and so on and so forth you go up to the third level of loving and belongingness and now the things that are uh, safety and um, and physiological needs those aren't necessarily always going to be the major motivators, you might have things in that third one. So it's sort of once you've crossed the threshold, there's no going back was the way that it was sort of originally talked about. So it's, I think, often confused that 
you could look at an example of human behavior that doesn't seem that clearly seems to violate what would be predicted by that pyramid. If you can look at someone who is very wealthy and successful doing self-destructive things and, um, and doing things that are very counterproductive and say, well, that would violate the triangle. And, you know, Maslow, I think would have argued that it doesn't because that what has happened is that they've already had those other needs met. So now the thing that's, that can be more important to them might over, uh, overpower some of the motivation at those lower levels. But let's get into what has what developed with the uh, with the table before we dwell on that for too yeah, long. Yeah, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about how over time the we have we have violated the triangle, right? I'm going to start using that term. <laughs> we, <laughs> we as a human race that, have violated the triangle. <laughs> that makes me think of that South Park episode. The uh, what was it? I broke the dam. <laughs> um, <laughs> I violated the triangle. I violated the triangle. <laughs> <laughs> so over time, obviously, humans have learned a little bit more about the world, right? We've done all this research and we, we've kind of, that's the whole idea of, of scientific research is to understand more about the world. And, you know, his, 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 his model from went from the five stages to including a couple different things. Uh, and what you'll see, and we'll talk about these in a little bit is he added a, there's a cognitive need now. So we're looking at, you know, knowing and understanding and all that. We, there's an aesthetic need and there's also a transcendence need. So these three, they actually evolved from the five stage model to a seven stage model and then an eight stage model. So some of the more current um, discussions around the, the, the hierarchy of needs includes this eight stage model or maybe has kind of turned it. I've even seen six stage models where it might have lumped in some of those levels into a more nebulous type of pyramid. It's a softer pyramid now. So going through those, um, the this idea of cognitive needs suggests sort of where motivation might be something like the desire to know and to understand things um, that that people are uh, find it rewarding to acquire knowledge and to be able to sort of describe a systematic version of the universe, um, and that that. The idea was that in a way that could be considered something of like going back to that basic safety need and the basically the ability to have a, a free range and encouragement, I guess, to inquire and express your orientation to uh, how you sort of comprehend the universe. And so inside of this, you get things like curiosity and exploration and understanding and whatnot. Yeah. And then so. That that seems to kind of fall in line with more of like the 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 love like the love and belonging stage, right? Like so, or even like or you said like the safety stage, where it's like kind of like within that realm, but there's not really a good definition of like where it falls on that pyramid right now. And so, like kind of along those lines, where you talk about uh, you know this cognitive need, where it, it it tends to be, it seems to fall in line with you know uh, above a little bit above like those safety needs or within that safety realm, and kind of like toes the line between safety and loving and belonging because there's probably a social aspect to that you mm -hmm. know and that's probably just what i'm gleaning from it but there's also this aesthetic need which seems to kind of fall in line with or maybe it's like a half part of the triangle with uh esteem or uh somewhere along those lines so when they talk about aesthetic needs they talk about balance appreciation search for beauty things that are not necessarily relevant to the idea of of basic human survival but things that may help to um enhance the human experience and maybe get that person towards that self-actualization piece. And some people might be listening, listening to this and thinking there are other things that motivate me that are completely different and don't fit into any of the categories that have been discussed. And for you, I have transcendent needs. <laughs> Self-transcendence. Uh, exactly. And the idea here is that is being motivated by values, especially those that transcend beyond um, the personal self. So a thinking, um, someone who would tie themselves to a tree, for example, to prevent it from being cut down. Um, but specifically thinking about people who look at the world and try and, and view it as they're part of a bigger picture or there's something bigger going on and, and where do they fit in this like uh, sort of meta scheme of things. And so this might include things like religious faith. Um, it might include a certain appreciation for nature. As mentioned previously, this apparently might include something like sexual experiences um, that everything, every sex, sex is all over the place in this particular <laughs> pyramid. Um, it's a so wild pyramid. It is a, it's a, a Burning Man pyramid. Um, so... <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, that that's the those bigger sort of transcendent needs. So what's what's interesting about the transcendent needs is this could probably speak to or account for um, altruism, right? Like altruistic behavior, which doesn't. It's a great point. Which really doesn't exist, I don't think. But that's if you talk about like a behavior, a behaviorist standpoint, like there's always some kind of motivation somewhere. But um, you know, and it there's always some kind of need met. But it's it's kind of interesting to see that like that might account account for that idea of altruism, and probably need to do a further discussion on that later. Yeah, that I, that's what I've been interested in. Um, it's it has come up quite a bit. I think the idea of altruism, and so being able to break it down, going into the history of it, and sort of the 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 case for and against, like we did with consciousness, um, and because I, I think that it's going to be one of those things similar to consciousness, where it sort of defend, depends on how you define it in the first place, and where you what your criteria are for deciding. I guess whether or not it is a thing or could be considered a thing. Yeah. Um, and I, that's the most diplomatic way of putting it. I think to, <laughs> to regard it as a, 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 I don't know, I guess a black and white de- uh, definition of something, then, then no, but spoiling the whole episode when we talk about altruism. So <laughs> we'll, we'll transition back to where we were. That's right. <laughs> Stay tuned for the future. So at the end of all this, when we talk about not the end, cause we're not at the end yet. Cause we're going to talk about some of the research, but when we kind of yeah. conceptualize the pyramid and, and kind of the new blocks that are put in and the new layers and, and the new lobby that we've just added with transcendence, the, the idea here is that it's not, um, as rigid as it was originally implied or that people assume it is, right? So the idea is that, you know, and you kind of touched on it before where it's like if somebody's fasting, does that mean that they're not self-actualized? I could picture somebody like Gandhi who may be in that circumstance where he's probably pretty high up on the pyramid, but he spent a lot of time fasting and working on that transcendent piece, right? Where he's working on things that are at values outside of his own self, you know? And he's got some problematic history, but that's just kind of one of those things to, to consider in that regard. But I think what it accounts for is this idea that it's it's there's flexibility, right? It's it's not so rigid for every single individual that comes across it. It is so flexible across every individual that that is looking to meet their needs. Yeah, and some um, some have essentially pointed out, including Maslow himself, that some of the the order may, as you just as he basically just said. It might be a little bit different. It might be a little bit more fluid. Uh, Maslow actually said several things to this effect at at various points in his career as it's developed that it's maybe a little bit fuzzy. What as one begins to fulfill on one might gain access to another, and it's not always necessarily going to be that specific order, which I think in a way undermines the idea of a hierarchy. But let's just you know I'm gonna quote Maslow here so we can give a get a sense of of his own words about this. He's and I'm talking specifically here about how um, how that order might be a little bit off for for certain people in certain contexts. And he said, quote, for some people in whom, for instance, self-esteem seems to be more important than love, this most common reversal in the hierarchy is usually due to the development of the notion that the person who is most likely to be loved is a strong or powerful person, one who inspires respect or fear, and who is self-confident or aggressive. Therefore, such people who lack love and seek it may try hard to put on a front of aggressive, confident behavior. But essentially, they seek high self-esteem and and its behavior expression more as a means to an end than for its own sake, end quote. And I think that part of what is to be interpreted from that is that in a way he's sort of saying they might appear to be in this order and that would explain why their behavior looks different than what might be predicted. And that for certain people, they might have, maybe this isn't what he meant, but part of what I'm sort of hearing in this is that people might sort of vicariously have their needs met by being around others who have those needs met um, and and behave as if they have those needs met, which makes it seem more available to those those people. That's at least how I might interpret some of what was said in that side of that. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And I think that, you know, at the, at the, you know, at the core of it, what you're talking, like what he's talking about is, is that, you know, that people have, a variety of needs that don't follow this rigid, this rigid series. Like, I mean, he talks later about like, you know, this idea that the, that the pyramid itself is, is this stepwise or it could be interpreted as a stepwise thing. And it's not like you've got this whole situation where, you know, for example, another one you might look at is, is a person may be experiencing life at a very low level, right? Like they may not be experiencing life as long as they've got food in their belly and in a, in a, you know, roof over their head. That may be all it takes for them to, to have all their needs met and, and to like not have a level of aspiration beyond that. 
So every every person in every circumstance in every situation just really is different. And and we have to account for that that variable, which I don't know that the original hierarchy accounted for that. Yeah, and going back to another, uh, I guess I had mentioned earlier about the idea that the model is a little bit um, flexible in that it's it's not necessarily that every level is going to maintain its level of potency. But Maslow did discuss the fact that another cause for how order might be reversed is when a need has been satisfied for a really long time and doesn't really feel particularly present and therefore may be in a way undervaluated by the person beep um, under evaluated by the person. So for example, someone who has never experienced something like hunger may not ever have really contacted what it means to be motivated by things like hunger. Um, and so may regard food and um, I guess caloric security, if you will, <laughs> as uh, uh, they might view that as unimportant because that's just never been something they've ever really thought about. I think that I, you know, I don't know if I ever missed a meal until I was uh, an adult. So, um, and, and then the very first time that I did was like, thought I was then like, this is it. This is the, the last thing that ever happens to me is I don't eat this meal. And then I die. Um, because I, I didn't, I didn't know what it was like, you know? And so <laughs> I was so surprised that I was fine. Um, afterward, um, that's a whole different story, I think, but anyway, yeah, just that, that I do. Yeah. It's, it's, whatever. <laughs> okay. So then, so in, in kind of to clarify some of his points, what, what Maslow gets into is he talks about the idea that the hierarchy itself gives the impression of a stepwise all or none relationship, right? So the idea is that like, you have to meet one need to meet the next. And really what he's getting at is as, as some needs begin to be fulfilled, you might see another need emerge and uh, it gives the impression that it has to be all or none. But really the truth is like, I might have that, I might have that meal in my belly and I may have like a small part of that larger physiological need met, but there may be another need where it's like, Hey, now that I have, now that I can eat and now that I have like a steady meal and now that I've got a little bit of food stability. Now I need to look at financial stability, right? Because I, I'm, I'm eating, but I'm only eating meal to meal. I'm not planning for the next meal. So what does that look like as far as like, you know, caloric stability? caloric safety like you said or like you know <laughs> yeah. once i once i get caloric stability then what does it look like for residential stability or what does it look like for financial stability and then going forward once i get you know residential stability then you know where are my friends <laughs> so you know it's right. the my needs might not be entirely met but there but other needs start to emerge and so our focus tends to bounce between one thing and the other so you might be only like 90% satisfied with your physiological needs and then like 70% with your safety and then like 30% with the, yeah, that there's a little bit of a, a, an overlap there. But I think another question that obviously is raised outside of this is what does a hundred percent fulfillment look like? Is that even possible? And I think that in this case, percent is a very misleading idea with what could possibly exist for um, a hierarchy with a, a thing of needs because and also it raises the the question of what does fulfillment need too, um, because if uh, under what condition is a need sufficiently fulfilled that the next need becomes in, important to somebody, and because there is no, it doesn't really make sense to say that it's like one hundred percent fulfilled. Maybe it does, but like kind of it doesn't either. Um, you know, is it the point that you never experience hunger? Like that doesn't even make sense. I don't even think that would be recommended. You know, is it the point that you are, have never felt threatened or that nothing bad has ever happened to you in any capacity? Like that sounds like a, a great utopian idea, but I don't think it's realistic that that's ever going to be expected. So a hundred percent is, uh, is an idea that doesn't make sense inside of this context. I think it has to do relatively with the fact that there are not threats and therefore the, these things or, or a, a lack of opportunity in, in some of these cases. And so that's why those things are motivating um, for those people. So in 1943, he published a paper called A Theory of Human Motivation. And he touched upon the unconscious character of needs and also the cultural specificity and the generality of needs. So as we said, these American psychologists, us <laughs> <laughs> and our colleagues, um, have a terrible habit of 
studying a particular demographic or even a small swath of other demographics and then stating universally that this is the human experience. And, uh, and that also happened here, that this idea that this is human motivation, this isn't American motivation, but human motivation was uh, how this was originally sort of um, described. And it, so I think that Maslow acknowledged this relatively early on and said that there is going to be some level of cultural important impact on this, but that this is more or less a general experience of the human condition. That was his assumption, right? Which isn't necessarily to say that's inappropriate just because he didn't say that it has to be different from other cultures. There are things that all humans share regardless of their culture or, or anything else. Um, and that's, that's part of our species. And so I think it's acceptable to say that that's part of human psychology. There might, there's some, there's going to be something general there. And there are many things that have held up across cultures and, uh, across time and whatnot. But anyway, he describes that needs are uh, are neither necessarily conscious nor unconscious. That that they could sort of be both, and it didn't necessarily. You, I guess, sort of saying that you don't necessarily think, hmm, has my physiological need been met? I should pursue this thing that is going to satisfy that. Like that's not necessarily how you approach it. It's more just like a, a context for how your life is, and that. Uh, th- this classification needs to take into account the relative differences um, that people do experience with respect to uh, how the culture will shape what those motivations look like. And so it's sort of embedded in their environment and, and in their experience and not something that's specifically thought about. That being said, obviously people do have the thought of where am I going to get lunch? And um, is it at a sufficient level of threat or deprivation that right now I only care about being safe? Like that might be something that someone experiences in force, for example, something like a war zone. That might be something that people experience um, that is just get to safety. That's that's all I care about right now is survive and, and get out of this um, this situation. So it, it will depend. Um, and I think that although transcendent, that, that being a level, spoke to this idea of religious ideas, I think religious ideas can sufficiently undermine some of those things where people will specifically put themselves in harmful situations. Not always, absolutely not, but some people, that, that can be a motivator to put, put them in those harmful situations. And so that's another thing to understand that context that is like a culture. It's its own culture that was, religion I, exists. I was going to say, that speaks to probably and, Jonestown, right? Like Jim Jones and Jonestown, like the mm-hmm. like those individuals were yeah. not safe they were not their their physiological needs were not met, but because of that transcendent need being met, like it was a totally different situation. That's a yeah, very willing. That's a, yeah, to that's, be a, in and that's an extreme example and not common, but I just it just as an example of like how that might look. Right, and so um, and, and you know as I mentioned, Maslow does point out that people across other cultures uh, may be more alike than we'd like to think that they are, at least in terms of that idea of their needs. And so these differences might seem superficial rather than basic. So for example, how people dress and the kind of food they eat and whatnot. Basic physiological needs would be similar across organisms, but that's probably about where it stops. Yeah. We'll just leave it at that. That sounds great. All right. And then one more thing that I think is useful to, to talk about right here is that part of this this hierarchy that that Maslow helped create and has, you know, other people have used and expanded upon and whatnot. Part of his hypothesis inside of this was that the deprivation of a particular need that would predict and almost, but not quite diagnose like psychopathology or psychotic, um, psychopathic behavior. Right. And that doesn't, we'll talk about this later, but that doesn't necessarily hold up to scrutiny. We have found that you might look at someone whose needs have been sufficiently met and see that psychopathology, you might look at people whose needs have not been met and fail to find that psychopathology. So one potential use of this could maybe have been that if you were to be able to assess those needs, assuming that you have some tool that would enable you to do that with some level of confidence, People do use tools that we'll get into, but the uh, if you were to look at someone whose needs are not being met, you might be able to say this person is in danger of engaging in challenging 
possibly destructive behaviors, or they might be experiencing mental health issues. And unfortunately, that seems like that probably is not very much of the case. Okay, so there's a lot of ground to cover here, and I think we have we have only gone about halfway through our notes and are at nearly an hour-long episode, over an hour-long episode, I think, by the, when it is all said and done. So let's just quickly summarize this, um, this discussion by saying that Abraham Maslow, he came into behaviorist psychology. He um, didn't like that as much, uh, didn't like the Freudian psychology either, so he sort of joined this, the development and contributed to the development of this humanistic wave in psychology that that had was taking place and inside of that work he developed these this hierarchy of needs yeah and so this this hierarchy of needs was originally designed to account for kind of why because we're going to talk about motivations later but really talk about why humans do what they do all the way up through self-actualization and eventually transcendence you know what we do to be our best selves and beyond so that was kind of the that's kind of what he was trying to get at here. Right. And uh, and there are some the, the models may be a little more flexible than people might believe in that sometimes the order seems to be a little out of whack and that uh, there you don't necessarily have to have 100 percent fulfillment on one level to start um, being I guess, finding importance in things that would exist at another level. Um, so the, the model is a little less uh, rigid and stepwise than it may have believed. But that. The general idea in here is that this is mostly a universal commonality that people share as part of the human condition and that that would, according to Maslow, be one way of explaining or maybe the way. I don't know if he had a, a really strong feeling about that, but actually I do. And he didn't. And he talked about other things that contribute to human behavior. And there's no point in being coy. We'll cover that in our next episode. We'll talk about the uh, some of the other things that contribute to uh, motivations that drive behavior, as well as some of the criticisms that have been leveled against this idea of a hierarchy of needs. And we'll get into some specific research that has uh, looked at how to use this um, in other settings and whatnot. So does that, does that fairly wrap it up, you think? Yeah, I think it sounds good. Perfect. All right. So uh, catch us next week. We'll get to part two of this one and we'll uh, we'll cover all the ground that we just mentioned. And uh, if you have anything that you need to get off your chest and, and talking and getting back to us about this episode or any other episode, uh, contact us at info at www.wwdpodcast.com. And uh, I look forward to hearing from everybody. And uh, that's all I got. Uh, you got anything else? Nope. I'm good. Right. Perfect. All right. Well, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. And we're out. See ya. listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O., Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. (laughs) 